we live by the beach here in a touristy area, which means that every now and then you see a rather odd sight, namely of someone falling out of the sky. They've just jumped out of an airplane and they're making their way back down to earth in a way unthought of up till about 100 years ago. It's called skydiving. So say that's you up there in that plane and you're getting ready to jump and the instructor hands you the parachute to put on, but it's brand new and it's factory sealed. In fact, the instructor says it's a brand new model. It's never been tried before. You'll be the first. Would you have a problem with that? I would, because how do you really know it will work? Do you want to trust that the factory did a good job and attached all the ropes and cables properly, but at the same time, wouldn't you want a parachute that's been field tested first? I mean, with something like skydiving, that means you will 100% die unless the parachute works. So it's not wrong to want a parachute that has been tested and approved. Well, in many respects, Christ Jesus is like our parachute. He saves us from eternal peril. And you have to cling to Jesus by faith, just as you would cling to that parachute with all your might to save you. But how do you really know that Jesus can save you? What assurance do you have that your faith in him is not misplaced? It's not wrong to desire some assurance, but it's not our place to put the Lord to the test. However, God in his goodness has given us some assurance. He does not ask us to believe in his son blindly. He wants us to know that his son has been field tested as a savior and proved. He's tested. He's approved. You can trust him. We're saved by the work of Jesus on the cross where he bore our sins. But, you know, a lot of people died on crosses. What made his death on the cross so special? What made it saving? And that had everything to do with who it was dying on that cross. It was not an ordinary person. He was, rather, the divine Messiah. Jesus came as a true man, like a second Adam, a perfect substitute for sinners. But he also came as the divine man, God with us, Emmanuel. And by his perfect life, we know he's able to save. But there's one more vital aspect of the person of Jesus that enables our salvation. It is his sinlessness. I think it's something we don't think about or appreciate enough. His sinlessness. But if Jesus was not perfectly sinless, his entire death would have been in vain. He would have been dying for the wages of his own sins. And it would have disqualified him from being able to atone for ours. He himself would have needed a savior. It's like a marble, perfectly balanced on the tip of a needle. Just the slightest nudge would would cause it to fall. And so if Jesus had sinned even once his entire life, he would have fallen short of the perfection required to save us. No, but rather only the perfect, perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God would God accept. But thankfully, that was Jesus. Just stop and think for a moment, though, about the sinlessness of him. It just sounds preposterous. Yeah, of a human who lived no short time on earth, about three decades, and he interacted with his parents, his siblings, his friends, his rivals, his enemies, went through countless trials and tribulations, suffered countless wrongs and injustices, yet never once, never once responded in sin. That just sounds impossible to us. I mean, honestly, we can't even conceive what it's like to go through life without sin. Isn't that the greater miracle? I mean, walking on water is amazing. 
And turning water into wine, it's great and all, but, but going through his entire life where not one deed, not one word, not one thought of sin is remarkable. To be saved, you must cling to Jesus by faith, trusting him like that parachute to save you. You're not entitled to any proof he can save you, but your good heavenly father has given it to you anyway. In his word, he shows you how his son was tested and found approved. You get the test results. You get to examine the record. And as you do so, you find that Jesus was not just the son of God. He was the sinless, spotless son of God. You can trust him to save. In our text this morning, we're going to witness the very first and most important field test of Jesus as the Messiah, where God the Father willed to, to display the worthiness of his son by putting him to the test. It's found in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. You can open your Bibles there and, and join me. This first test is a big one. It's really second only to the cross itself. It is the temptation of Jesus by the devil in the wilderness. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. is a well-known passage relating the temptation of Jesus by Satan. We're talking Garden of Eden style temptation 2.0. But in case you didn't know, the outcome would be drastically different. Because even though Satan assails Jesus three times, he doesn't break. Jesus is put through test after test, but as he passes them all, he's found what? Approved. Proven. His complete and utter sinlessness is proven here in the most powerful way possible. This is one of the landmark events in the Gospels and the life of Christ. You don't want to miss this. You don't want to skip this or even skim over this. This is worth our time and attention. This text matters. It matters in showing us how to respond to our temptation. Yes, we'll talk about that. That's not even the main point. This text matters most in just showing us the true nature of Christ. His status as the sinless Son of God is put on display here. It's proven. And that is absolutely vital to our salvation and our ability to trust this Jesus to save us. But we're going to find Jesus passes the test. And our goal this morning is simple. It's just to walk through this passage and see what the temptation of Jesus reveals about his identity. What the temptation of Jesus reveals about his identity that we might just behold and trust our sinless Savior more. And so let's do that together. I'll give you a, a simple outline to follow. First, the Father speaks and the Son is approved. The Father speaks and the Son is approved. We're not going to start in chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to start in the verse before, just to remind ourselves what happened at the end of chapter 3. And just to set up the context, it is significant that the temptation of Jesus takes place immediately after his baptism. He was baptized by John in the Jordan that marked the formal beginning to his messianic ministry. What does it say then that his first order of business immediately after was to be led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? We'll reflect on that shortly, but just to be reminded what happened at his baptism, he wasn't just baptized. God the Father showed up to approve his son. Go back to chapter 3, really verse 16. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. 
And behold, a voice of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father tears open heaven to give approval of his Son. You may say this is Jesus being factory pre-approved. The Father who sent the Son into the world is assuring us that his Son can save us. If the Father had detected even the smallest shred of sin in Jesus, he could not say that he was well-pleased in him. He's only well-pleased by that which is perfectly righteous. If the tiniest grain of sin were found in Christ, he would have been disqualified. But in the Father's testimony, we really have all the assurance we need to trust that Jesus can save. However, God designed in his own will to back up this testimony with a field test. He lets us see. And so we find number two, the Spirit speaks and the Son is tested. The Father speaks, the Son is approved. Now the Spirit speaks, the Son is tested. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says then, right after this, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. We don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. I don't think it was with an audible voice, but no matter the case, I'm pretty sure Jesus could discern his voice. This was the Spirit's leading. The Father had a time of testing prepared for him. And these first two verses establish the setting of Christ's temptation. This took place, verse 1 says, in the wilderness. This refers to the Judean wilderness, which was a hot, barren, desolate land. It was unforgiving with steep ravines and, and jagged cliffs. Mark 1.13 adds that during this time, Christ was with the wild beasts in the wilderness. There are only snakes and scorpions here. Pretty much everything about the wilderness was hostile to human life. You're not meant to live in the wilderness. It's a fitting location, though, if you're on a fast, because it's not like you're going to find much food in the wilderness anyway. And indeed, Christ's wilderness journey involved a 40-day fast. We're not told why he fasted, but it seems pretty likely he, he went to commune with his father in prayer at the outset of his ministry. He often did that by means of a fast. Now, a 40-day fast is technically possible, but it, it stretches the limits of human life. And I think this certainly explains which one of the, the greatest understatements in all the Bible, verse 2, says, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Like, you think, you know? And Jesus had a real human nature, which means if he didn't eat food, he would die. And these hunger pains were real. Although perhaps his communion with God was so strong that he didn't pay attention to them at first. But suffice it to say, by the end of these 40 days, he was in a state of complete weakness when it came to his human condition, his human nature. And now you probably can imagine why Satan would choose this time to approach him with this temptation. I mean, how do you do when you are physically at your worst? All it takes for us to lose it is to miss a few hours of sleep or to skip a meal or have a few body aches. Everyone has a fuse of varying lengths, but we all can reach the end of our fuse. And when the fuse runs out, watch out, your sin is coming out. 
And the danger, though, of physical affliction is that it serves to make our fuses shorter and shorter and shorter. When we suffer physically, it just doesn't take much for us to sin. I mean, you just try fasting for a few days. See what it does to your body. Experience the pain, the weakness. Then face serious temptation in that time and see how well you do. Especially if that temptation were coming from the devil. That's what Jesus faced. Verse 1 mentions he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Devil translates the Greek word diabolos, which means accuser or slanderer. This is one of Satan's chief evil activities, so much so it basically became his other name, the, the accuser of the brethren, the slanderer, the devil. Satan first tempts people to sin. Once they've fallen into sin, he then turns around and becomes their primary accuser, making sure they're convicted of their unrighteousness. And though he himself has fallen, it appears he takes delight in nothing more than seeing humanity similarly spoiled. Just to cover some basis here, as we encounter the person of Satan in Matthew's gospel, it won't be the last time, but he is a real personal being. He's part of the angelic host. In fact, he was angel number one, literally the, the highest angel God created of the highest order, God's most beautiful creation. He was part of God's creation when God said it is very good. Satan was included then, but somehow a desire was birthed in his heart thereafter to, to be God, to be worshipped as God. He rebelled against God. He rebelled against his place in the heavenly order and took a bunch of other holy angels with him and fell. And together they became committed to corrupting and then conquering the realm of God's special creation, earth. And as you probably know, Satan found pretty easy prey in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve didn't last long up against his temptations. They themselves rebelled against God. They were deceived, but nonetheless, they rebelled against their God in choosing sin. And as a result, they were cursed, a curse which now passes on to all humanity. In John 8, 44, Jesus himself said that Satan is the father of lies and he's a murderer from the beginning. And this is why. And through deception, He succeeded in murdering the human race, plunging on to spiritual death. Now we all inherit separation from God from birth because of this inherited guilt from our head, Adam. Satan continues his work. He's aggressively opposing God. He's aggressively opposing believers. He's aggressively opposing the truth. He afflicts, he hinders, he schemes, he accuses, he persecutes. Most of all, he tempts. And catching wind that the Son of God has, has come down to earth, that he's taken on humanity in order to save humanity, I can't help but believe that Satan thinks he's got this covered. I mean, every single time in all of human history that he or one of his followers has come up against a human, they've won. I mean, yeah, every now and then a believer may occasionally flee temptation, find a way of escape, but just give it a little more time, they all fall. It's not hard. I mean, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah. Who's perfectly righteous? Who's without sin? Who's not fallen prey to Satan's devices? There's not one. And so I have to believe that in Satan's mind. He he just figures Jesus as a man, you're going to be the next name on that list. 
Now, before we get into these temptations here, I want to make mention of two huge questions that come out of this text. They're, they're always asked. We need to ask them as well. Namely, could Jesus have sinned? Could he actually have sinned here? And does God tempt us to sin? Regarding the latter, you see in verse 1, it, it technically says it was the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So is God actually the one responsible for our temptations? And also, many have thought for these temptations to be genuine, doesn't that mean he had to have been able to sin? But how can that be? Because he was also divine. These are critical questions. But in our desire to get through this whole passage today, they're not questions we can answer right now. But have no fear because we will be coming back next time to answer them in full. This text of the temptation of Jesus is too rich to just preach through once anyway. We'll probably preach through this a couple of times because there's so many layers to this temptation passage. But for right now, it's only good for you to just take at face value what scripture says. Yes, it clearly was God's will for the son to be tempted in the wilderness. Now, God never solicits anyone to do evil. But he sure can sovereignly repurpose someone's temptations and make them his own testing. And that is God's design here. He's not designing this that his son might fall into sin, but that his son might be field tested and proven, steadfast, immovable, and sinless. And also as Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted as we are in all things, yet without sin. Jesus was truly tempted and he truly overcame such that he can truly be our great high priest. In all, you can be assured that what we witness here in Matthew 4 was real. This is not a sham. This is not an act. This was real. This was a genuine temptation, which means it was a genuine victory leading to his genuine approval. We'll carry on with those questions in greater depth next time. For now, we're going to move on with the text. Getting to the meat of it here. Three, the devil speaks and the son is tempted. Now it's time for the devil to speak and the son is tempted. You see that in verse 3, with his forked tongue, he launches a round of attacks. Go to verse 3 of chapter 4. It says after this that the tempter came and said to him, If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. We don't know whether Satan came to Jesus in some physical form, whether he inhabited another snake, or whether this all took place in a series of visions. We don't know for sure. But as with Adam and Eve, the dialogue is crystal clear, and that, that tells us enough. His first question, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, at first glance, you might think that that doesn't sound too nefarious. It doesn't sound too evil. I mean... Jesus is hungry. Would it, would it be so wrong if he used a little bit of his power to turn a few stones into bread and alleviate his hunger? We need to think on this a moment. At first, Satan is not here questioning whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. Throughout the Gospels, anytime a demon encounters Jesus, they immediately know who he is. You're the Holy One of God. There's no questions. That's confirmed in this verse by the fact that this statement in verse 3 is called what's, or it's known as 
what's called a first-class conditional statement, which just means it's phrased in such a way that it assumes the condition is true. So in other words, it could just as well be translated since. Since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Satan is here not denying that Jesus is the Son of God. He's challenging him to prove it. Prove it by commanding that these stones become bread. Being the Son of God comes with power. Satan knows that. But being the Son of God, shouldn't that also come with some prestige? But look, is this any way to treat your son, have him starve in the wilderness for 40 days? He deserves more than that. Why not use a little of his own power to suit his own needs, serve himself? Is that really so wrong? See, what's really going on here in this first temptation is a battle of wills. Not between the devil and Jesus, but between Jesus and the Father. Jesus himself makes clear in the incarnation, he has his own will. But as the Son of God, he did not come to do his own will. He came entirely to carry out the will of his Father in heaven. He has fully submitted his will to the Father's will, such that they are one. But as he says in John six I've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. So Satan is tempting Jesus here to violate that, to use his sonship in a self-willed manner, not a God-willed manner. Jesus does have power, and it would not be inherently wrong for him to turn a few stones into bread to feed himself if the Father willed. But in this case, Jesus knew it was the Father's will for him to wait, to fast, And to grow hungry because he was being tested. Never would he get to the point of questioning God's will for his life. And never would he assert his self-will over his father's will because he knew his will is perfect. And so Jesus responds, verse 4. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Christ's response to temptation is to quote scripture, which he will do every time. Here he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which recalls Israel's 40-year wilderness wandering. And there God tells Israel that he purposely led them into the wilderness. Why? It says to test them just to see what's inside of you, what's inside your heart. This test will show me. Then it says this, Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, verse 3, which we read this morning. It says that regarding God and the the Jews, he humbled you. He let you be hungry and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. I appreciate D.A. Carson's commentary here. He says this, quote, Israel's hunger had been intended to show them that hearing and obeying the word of God is the most important thing in life. Likewise, Jesus learned obedience through suffering as a son in God's house. More necessary than bread for Jesus was obedience to God's word. You see, basically Satan was under the mistaken impression that the most important thing to Jesus was staying alive. For most of us, That's the most important thing. The number one need or or demand in your life is just to stay alive, the the need for survival. And it will lead many of us to sin, but not Jesus. 
He was so committed to the will of the Father, he would not violate it, even if it meant starving to death in the wilderness, even if it meant dying on a cross. And that's because Jesus was totally convinced that the will of his Father in heaven was good, that his Father himself was good, and that no matter what happened, God would work all things out for good. So no, Jesus was not going to use his power to satisfy his hunger. He wasn't going to trade God's will for his own self-will. Just as he said later, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was satisfied enough in just carrying out the will of God, come what may. Now let's move on to round number two, verse five. It says after this, that the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here's G- uh, Satan takes Jesus to the holy city, Jerusalem, on top of the temple, a pinnacle of the temple. We don't precisely know where that pinnacle would have been, but he then dares Jesus to throw himself down off this height, which would have meant certain death. But since he's the son of God, that means God would naturally command his angels to go save his life because it was not God's will for any harm to befall the Messiah before the time. This temptation most likely comes as a vision. I don't think Satan and Jesus walked together to Jerusalem to act this out. It's probably a vision, but the effect is real. You'll notice though in verse 6, Satan is now the one quoting scripture. He quotes Psalm 91, a song of God's protection. In the first temptation, Satan was beaten back because Jesus wielded the sword of the spirit. And so now it's as if Satan is saying, I can quote some scripture too, you know. All right, Jesus, you claim that you will live and die by the word and the will of God alone. Well, hey, here's, here's some of the word and will of God concerning you. Let's see if you really believe it. Put your, God, put your trust in God's word to the test and prove it by jumping off the temple. And it was indeed the Father's will to protect and preserve the life of the Messiah, that no harm would befall him before the time. So Satan is tempting Jesus to prove that, backed by a promise of Scripture. And surely he thinks he's, he's backed Jesus into a corner now. Like, what, what can you say to this? But no, verse 7, Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is true, Satan can quote the scriptures, but only out of context, just like all false teachers. All false teachers twist and distort the scriptures according to their own wicked agenda. And that's because all false teachers, not truly respecting the Bible as God's word, neglect the very first principle of interpreting uh, the Bible, God's word. It's called the analogy of faith, or scripture interprets scripture. God doesn't lie. His word never contradicts. And so while it's true that God wills no harm to befall the Messiah before his time, Satan failed to take into consideration what God has also said elsewhere. Namely, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
In this response, Jesus continues to wield scripture rightly, truthfully. And this time he quotes back Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, which says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. This in turn harkens back to Exodus 17, where after the Exodus, Israel did just that. Not long after the Exodus, the people were already complaining against the Lord because they didn't have water. And it says back in that passage, they put God to the test, which is to say they doubted him and they called on him to prove himself to them. As if God had already not done enough to prove his love and his concern for them. To put God to the test like this, to force him to prove his protection and his provision is really nothing more than thinly veiled unbelief. Jesus had no doubt in his father's protection and provision. He does not need to make him prove it. God is not the one that needs to be tested ever. We are. Jesus knew that. But he found approval as he once again falls right back on this this comprehensive, uh, deep trust in God. There's just no limit to the depths of his trust in his heavenly father. And so now for round three, verse eight. It says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and said to him, all these things I'll give to you. If you fall down and worship me, Satan must be a little frustrated because now he drops all pretenses. He's no longer putting up a front. He's kind of cutting to the straight of what he's after, what he's been after this whole time. And that is glory. He wants worship for himself. He can't stand that the son of God has a name higher than all the angels. That includes him. If only Satan could rob that from God as well. It'd be the ultimate blow. But how could he possibly get the son of God to worship him? Well, let's just give him what he's after. Satan knows how to tempt people with their deepest desires. And Satan believed what Jesus wanted most was the nations. So he took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world with all their glory. This certainly is a vision now. But from the top of the world, Satan gives Jesus a view of the glory of the kingdoms of the world. Probably showing him from the pyramids to the great wall, from Babylon to Rome. Showing him all all this world has to offer. And it, it could all be his. You may wonder, was power over the nations really Satan's to give? Yes and no. In his mind, he surely believed they were. He conquered this world through the fall. And indeed, until God reclaims this world functionally, Satan is the ruler of this world. Scripture itself says of Satan right now in this age, he is the God of this world. He's the ruler of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Right now, the kingdom of darkness reigns, not the kingdom of God, not, not yet. He has effectively deceived the nations. The thing is though, you and I know that it's only because God has allowed this. This is all part of God's bigger plan for his greater glory. He has allowed Satan to corrupt his creation and to rule. He's on a leash, but but not forever. Whether Satan knows this or not is hard to say. Sin is quite blinding. 
But God's plan has always been to reclaim this world and usher in his kingdom. And he was going to do so through his son. God could do this at any time he wants, of course. But he has this desire to populate this kingdom with humans. And so if that's going to happen, these humans need to be redeemed. Because they're all held captive by sin. But for that to happen, the son has to come on this rescue mission. Even dying in their place that God's wrath might pass over them. This was always God's plan. And, his, and for his son, it always had as its reward the inheritance of the nations. Isn't that what Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 promised regarding God's anointed son? Ask of me, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. It was God's will that all the nations render praise and glory and honor to the son to the lamb who was slain. But you realize for that to happen, the lamb had to be slain. The cross had to come before the crown. The path to glory had to first go through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus had to suffer and die. Only then would he inherit the glory of the nations. This helps you understand how Satan's third temptation is the most devious because he's offering Jesus what he came for His own inheritance, but without the cross, without the suffering. You, Jesus, you are the son of God. You should be the one ruling the nations. I can give them to you. I can give you all their glory. And we can do this the easy way. There's untold suffering the father's way. That doesn't sound like a loving father to me. No, just just avoid the suffering. Avoid the painful death. Avoid the cross. Just worship me. And I'll give you the glory of the nations. And no doubt Satan would have been satisfied with the smallest genuflection. Yeah, he wanted Jesus to, be, to bow down, but let's be real. He would have accepted the smallest nod, the slightest wink, the slimmest praise, anything that indicated Satan was worthy of worship. But in doing so, he would have disqualified the Messiah. For Jesus to render anyone Or anything, any worship that belongs to God alone would have meant the instant end of his kingship and his kingdom. And would have sealed humanity in eternal death. But that wasn't going to happen. And before we get to verse 10, we can point out number four. Finally, it's time for the son to speak and the son is approved. The son speaks and the son is proved. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. With this last temptation, Jesus had enough. He was weak, he was weary, but he was still firm and resolute. Though genuinely tempted, he never yielded an inch He responds one last time with scripture, Deuteronomy 6, 13, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What more needs to be said? Doesn't get much more direct and straightforward than that. All worship, honor, praise, and glory is due God alone. It's not for men. It's not for angels. That includes the devil. This glory is for God alone. Yet, this glory is actually meant to be shared with with one other, the son. 
If Jesus gave into Satan's temptations and worshiped him, he actually would not inherit the nations. What do you know? Satan was lying. But precisely by trusting God, by worshiping him, him alone, by fulfilling his mission without any shortcuts, in the end, Jesus received just that, the right to inherit the world. And so it's like Jesus says, after the cross, after his work is done, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has it all now. He holds the keys to life and death because he was faithful. And for now, Jesus was done tolerating Satan's devices. So he commands him to depart. This is an imperative. This is a command. And Satan may be the ruler of this world, but he's still on God's leash. And when Satan commands him, he, or rather when Jesus commands him, he has no choice to, but to obey. The devil leaves him. But as Luke 4, 13 adds, until an opportune time, this would not be his last temptation. Even before the cross, there'll be more. But for now, it is enough. Satan has failed in his temptation, but Jesus has passed his test. And as a result, it says angels came and began to minister to him. And surely these were the good angels. And it's true, God would let no harm befall his Messiah. He's not going to let him starve to death in the wilderness. And this is most likely a reference to angels bringing him food, just like angels did with Elijah during his wilderness affliction. I like to think, though, along with R.C. Sproul, that the angels didn't just bring him bread. I like to think that they brought him the, the best meal mankind has ever known. With this, though, that the tempting and the testing of Jesus comes to a close for now. But this first field test of Jesus is so important precisely because it, it wouldn't be the last. If Jesus couldn't handle this first test of trusting God despite all the pains of hunger, how could he face the ultimate test of trusting God despite the pains of the cross? A greater temptation would come on that cross. Recall, surely demonic inspired. If you're the son of God, just, just take yourself down off the cross. If you're really the son of God, just call on the angels to deliver you. And we know he, he could have. He could have done that. But he didn't. Because he knew it was not the Father's will. That time, there, were, there would be no angels to show up. No one's coming for him. That time, there would be no rescue. He was handed over to death for us. But here we see Jesus proved he was willing to go that distance for us. He proved he was willing to fully accept the Father's will. But in passing this test from the wilderness to the cross, several truths, essential truths about the sonship of Jesus arise to the surface. And that's actually the primary purpose of this account. Matthew in his gospel has been telling us who Jesus is. God Said so at the end of chapter 3, but now with this field test, he's, he's showing us who he really is. We get to see the test. We get to read the results. We get to find out just who this Jesus really is, and it, it bolsters our trust in him. And so let's just quickly finish. I want to give you four reflections on, on who Jesus is based on his test results. This, this will be quick, but Jesus first, he's revealed to be a second Adam. Jesus is revealed to be a second Adam. This connection is made much more explicit in Luke's gospel. But it's very clear that Jesus comes as a second Adam. 
to succeed everywhere the first Adam failed. And in God's providence, Satan's temptation at the outset of his ministry really is like a Garden of Eden 2.0. In fact, Jesus had it much harder. Adam and Eve weren't starving to death when they faced the temptation of the devil. They were surrounded by a veritable feast in a pristine environment. Jesus was starving and he was in the wilderness, a harsh, barren environment, and he was alone. But it just goes to show you, at the end of the day, your environment is not to blame for your sin. External circumstances can add to your trial, but, but Jesus proved that succumbing to temptation, it comes down to character. Despite Satan appealing to the same lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, Jesus didn't fall. He used the same tactic of undermining the word of God. Did God really say? But Jesus chose to trust God and to trust his word all the way. And this is just part of the essential qualification of him being a new Adam, a new head of a new race, the race of the redeemed. Secondly, Jesus is revealed to be a second Israel. He's revealed to be a second Israel. The parallels between Jesus and Adam are strong here, but the parallels between Jesus and Israel are stronger. Israel was likened to God's son, God's servant, and even God's savior, a type of savior. God promised to Abraham that in his seed, all the nations would be blessed. But it became apparent that corporate Israel was not actually qualified to bring salvation to the nations. They themselves needed salvation. That was clear in their test results. This wilderness backdrop to Christ's temptation is also not on accident. It's meant to evoke Israel's wilderness testing. And it's no coincidence that each time Jesus rebuffs the temptations of the devil, he quotes scripture, but not just any scripture. Three times he quotes Deuteronomy. Each time it's a passage that has to deal with Israel's testing in the wilderness. Only Jesus is showing he's going to succeed where God's first people failed. They grumbled. They complained. They doubted God. They disqualified themselves real quick, but not Jesus. Instead, God went on to promise further that his salvation would come through a singular seed of Abraham, and he would typify God's hope through Israel, and that was Christ. Matthew's been showing us this, emphasizing us, uh, emphasizing this rather. He's been showing us Jesus retrace the steps of Israel, recapitulating Israel's history. Jesus goes down to Egypt. He's called up from Egypt. Now he enters the wilderness to be tested just like Israel. But each time Jesus is proven true. This is the one in whom all the nations will be blessed. This is God's true son, servant, and savior. Third, Jesus is revealed to be a sympathetic priest. In this passage, this tempting, he's revealed to be a sympathetic priest or high priest. Because it's also not a coincidence that his fasting was how long? 40 days, 40 nights, which just so happens to be the exact same time frame Moses fasted as God called him up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, according to Exodus 34, 28. And this testing for Jesus was similarly designed to prepare him to be a mediator over a new people, giving them a new law, the law of Christ. Jesus is that new, final mediator between God and man, our great high priest, 
one who reflects the glory of God to us fully. He's the one who will go before us and lead us in the everlasting way. In fact, he's the one who, who gave himself for us, laid himself down. He gave his perfect life in exchange for ours that we might gain access to God's everlasting way. And beyond this, the book of Hebrews promises, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it truly means to be tempted as a man, as a human. He can sympathize with our weaknesses, but he overcame without sin. And he can show us, he can empower us to do the same. In fact, this point right here really demands further and deeper reflection. How are we supposed to follow in his steps to overcome our temptation? We're most definitely meant to learn from Christ's handling of Satan in the wilderness, how we too are to respond to tempting and testing. So much more so that we're going to come back next time also to, to peer further into what we can learn from the example of Jesus How are we to retrace his footsteps in battling temptation? But for now, we're going to keep the main thing central. And the main point of this text is Jesus. And we get to witness his field testing that we might have full confidence in him as the son of God, that the sinless savior who can actually save us. So we can finish with this, number four, the fourth reflection of his true identity Jesus is revealed to be a sinless savior. You and I can't even make it through most mornings without sin. We fall prey to temptation and the lust of the flesh daily. But again, just think and just appreciate that Jesus never sinned once. There was not found in him even the smallest moral blemish. His obedience to God was total. But we we saw how that really stemmed from his total trust in God. His moment by moment, utter belief in God and his word. And he proved he was willing to go all the way to save us, even death on the cross. And despite that untold wrath, he would stay on the cross. He would not bring himself down. He would not call on the angels. He would stay on that cross per the Father's will for us. So that this could be said of us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is our qualified, sinless, field-tested, and approved Savior. And now you need to trust him. You need to behold him with faith and trust him with all your heart, with all you got. Trust his word and his will for your life all the way, without reservation, without doubt, not second guessing. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You need to now follow him, leading to your obedience, but that, again, stems from this utter faith. He's tested, he's approved. I can safely, confidently give him my whole life. Come what may, even if I die, he's good. His plan is good. He'll work it out for good. I can trust this Savior. I must trust this Savior. You need now to live for his glory and breathe every breath for his praise. 
going to close, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5, a final passage here. Revelation chapter 5. This is John's vision of the throne room of God as God prepares to reclaim the world. This whole world is in the power of the evil one. And the kingdom of darkness reigns. And it will continue to do so until God puts an end to it. But it's, it's, it's about time for God to put an end to it in John's vision. But who's going to do this? Who is worthy to reclaim the earth on behalf of God? And John looks around. No one is found. No one is found worthy. There's this book here. It's pictured. And it represents the title deed to the earth. But it's sealed up with seven seals. No one is found worthy to, to open the book, to break the seals, to reclaim the nations. No one's worthy except for one. Read Revelation 5, 1 through 5 with me. John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Not even that strong angel was worthy. Verse 4, John says, Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and break its seals. We no longer need to weep in despair. Now we can weep in joy because Jesus, the one who will reclaim God's world, has come and he has overcome. And that includes us. And so it says down in verse 9, this is why they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people, and nation. By his grace, that includes us, so let's add our voice to that song. And Father in heaven, we, we want to praise you and exalt you for your son Christ, the Lamb of God who came and, and had to be slain for us to be a part of that heavenly choir. That choir, loft would be empty for all eternity if the Son did not come and die for us, rise again to draw us to him. And that heavens would likewise be empty if the Son came and yet sinned. Even once, Lord, that the smallest thought, that the passing word, the littlest deed, if he fell once into sin, we would be doomed forever because we would be without a savior, as would he. But we thank you that he came to earth and though divine, lived as a man and and truly overcame temptation. He succeeded where all others failed. He proved himself eternally qualified to be our savior, our priest, our king, We thank you. We praise you for for him. Lord Jesus, we praise you for for this mighty work. We thank you for your, your faith in your father, your will to not succumb to evil, to not take yourself down off that cross. We we shortly will reflect on this in Good Friday and Easter. And I pray these thoughts capture us this whole week. Serve a savior who went all the way for us. What's now the least we can do for him? How can we not offer up our lives and trust him implicitly with all that we are? to praise him, to live for him, to share his name with the nations whom he came for. Inspire us, fill us with the love of Christ as he first loved us 
gave himself up for us without sin. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.